Hey, good evening. God bless you guys. Good to see you. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter 3? 1 Peter 3. Now, uh, the last few weeks in our study in 1 Peter, he's been admonishing us to be good witnesses by uh, honoring God and being submissive to those he has placed in authority over our lives. As we have said, God has designed three institutions which are essential for the function of human society. They are human government, the church, and marriage. And I'm also including family. But uh, all three are vital to the health of any societies we have talked about, and all three function under the principle of authority and submission. You know, submission would be impossible without humility. And uh, true humility would be impossible unless a person was spirit-filled. But, you know, I'll just say this to you. Um, humility isn't really a, a quality that's valued very much in our culture today. used to be, uh, not so much anymore. Uh, as a society, uh, people look down on humility. They consider humility a sign of weakness. I mean, God's Word says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But in America, the motto seems to be, blessed are the proud, the arrogant, the pushy. They shall be exalted, or in other words, promoted in the company above the rest. They shall be great and successful. But that's the world's way of thinking. That's in direct conflict with the nature and character of God and how he has commanded us as his people to live and to act. The question is, just what is true humility? A lot of Christians think that being humble means that you go around putting yourself down all the time. Uh, I'm nothing. I'm worthless. I'm a worm, you know, which more times than not is nothing more than pride masquerading as humility. Jesus said, learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus was the epitome of humility, and he was no worm. Nor did he go around putting himself down to everyone he came in contact with. Listen, humility True humility isn't self-loathing. It's not beating yourself up all the time. Humility isn't the same as low self-esteem. Genuine humility doesn't focus on self at all. It doesn't put self down, doesn't lift self up. True humility simply ignores self altogether while it focuses on others. And we've talked about this, but humility uh, is found all over the Scripture. And there is a vertical humility and then a horizontal humility. Vertical humility deals with our relationship to God. What does it look like? Well, vertical humility toward God is simply the quality that, that understands, the attitude, the uh, heart that understands it. Look, I'm helpless without God. I can do nothing apart from Him. Pride says, I can do it, Lord. I can, I can do it. Watch me go. But true humility, because again, rooted in being filled with the Holy Spirit, True humility says, Lord, I can do nothing apart from you. That causes me to lean on God for everything, to lean on him and depend on him for everything. That's vertical humility. Horizontal humility deals with our relationship to others. Horizontally, genuine humility says, very simply, you're more important to me than I am. That's all. Very simple. You're more important to me than I am. We quoted Philippians 2, 3 last week where Paul said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. 
when humility is truly present in a Christian's life, uh, it will first and foremost manifest itself in a submissive attitude towards the authority of God. Absolutely. It's pretty obvious. But then, guys, toward those he has delegated authority to, whether we're talking about the government or the church or marriage. And again, you see how humility works. It actually, both the vertical and the horizontal are working all the time because all authority belongs to God. Ultimately, he's the authority over everything. But then he has delegated authority to these institutions, government, church, marriage, family. And when you are truly humble before God, I can do nothing apart from you, Lord. I'm dependent on you. It also manifests itself in the attitude that says, well, since I'm dependent on you, Lord, and you have told me, I am to submit to those that you've placed in authority over me. You see, it kind of works, uh, both the vertical and the horizontal kind of working together. This is humility. If it's really there in a Christian's life, and not all Christians walk in humility. We, we talk about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 3, right? You notice in all the fruit that Paul mentions, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, he doesn't mention humility, does he? Why is that? It's important, isn't it? Of course it is. It's because humility is more of the soil that allows the fruit of the Spirit to grow than it is one of the fruits itself. It's all dependent on humility. Just like the evil poison fruit of self grows in the soil of pride, we need to cultivate a heart of humility, which only comes from God. And as we do, it allows the fruit of the Spirit to begin to grow uh, in and through our lives. Rebellion against God's authority, guys, is the reason for all the problems we face in society, family, marriage, and every other interpersonal relationship that we have as human beings. Of course, rebellion against God's authority started in heaven before it was ever exported to earth. Turn to Isaiah 14. And believe me when I tell you, we will get to 1 Peter 3. We're just going by way of introduction. You'll see how this all ties together in just a second. We're talking about honoring God by submitting to his authority and, of course, then to those that he has delegated authority to. The opposite is rebellion. And that, of course, is what the devil's all about. He was the first rebel. But rebellion against God's authority started in heaven long before it was exported to the earth. Isaiah 14, starting with verse 12. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. The stars of God is a reference to angels. So Lucifer wanted to be in charge of everything. He wanted to be above God. He wanted to be the most high. He didn't want to submit to God. He wanted to rebel against him because he wanted to be the ruler of all. And so verse 13, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. I, 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 I. That's pride, and that is the opposite of humility and submitting to God's authority. Well, Revelation 12, verse 4, you don't have to turn there. It tells us what happened when Satan led this rebellion in heaven. It tells us a third of the angels of heaven followed Satan in his rebellion, and they became fallen angels, determined to do everything in their power 
to bring their rebellion to the earth and destroy mankind which God had made, listen, in his image for the purpose of bringing glory to his name. You can't get at God. He's too powerful. All right? Next best thing, if you want to hurt God, hurt those that he has made in his image. Hurt humanity. Of course, we know the story in Genesis chapter 3, as God had put Adam and Eve in this beautiful garden and so on and had fellowship with them every day. Lucifer, the devil, took the form of a serpent, came and talked to Eve. That was her first problem, talking to a serpent. Uh, But she talked to him like it was no big deal. And uh, he basically convinced her to rebel against what God said, to eat the fruit that he had forbidden them from eating. And she ate, gave to Adam, and he ate, and they fell. And eventually then, chapter 3, verses 15 to 18, God pronounces the curse. First on the serpent, and then on the woman in verse 16. I should have had you turn there. Genesis 3, 16. God is pronouncing the curse on the woman. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And guys, we have talked about this before, so bear with me if you've heard this, but the final words of God to Eve are especially significant. Your desire shall be for your husband. Now that sounds kind of endearing, doesn't it? Oh, isn't that sweet? Her desire is going to be for her husband. You know, when he's at work, she's going to really miss him. You know, that kind of thing. Sounds endearing. Problem is, God is not speaking here in endearing terms. He's pronouncing the curse. The word desire in Hebrew means to seek control. To seek control. It's the same word used in chapter 4, verse 7, which says, and God's talking to Cain now. Cain and Abel brought sacrifices to the Lord. God had told them what to bring and so on. Abel apparently listened to God and brought what God had commanded, and God accepted his offering. Cain decided, no, I don't like what God said. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to bring what I want to bring. And God wouldn't accept Cain's offering. Cain was pretty upset. So God said to him in verse 7 of chapter 4, Look, if you do well, won't you be accepted? And if you do not do well, in other words, if you don't obey me, why should I accept you? All right? He said, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But listen, you should rule over it. What is God saying? He is saying that sin will seek to control us and dominate us, but we are not to let it. Now, the fall affected more than just this, but this is a big one. This, in part, would be some of the results of the fall of mankind. That from this point on, the woman would desire to control her husband, and he was not to let that happen. He was to be the leader of his home. Before the fall, it doesn't tell us specifically that Eve was in perfect submission and obedience to God. Paul kind of infers that in um, 1 Timothy 2, but after the fall, things changed. I mean, before the fall, Adam and Eve were functioning as God had designed them in the roles that God had put them in. He was in leadership. Uh, God made him first, and from his side created woman, Eve. And that was God's way of saying, uh, you know, I could have made them both at the same time, but God purposely made Adam first, and then from Adam, 
he made Eve because he was establishing this principle of authority and submission. And apparently before the fall, it was going just great. Uh, Adam was in charge, although he didn't have to remind Eve that he was in charge because Eve never wanted to rebel. She loved Adam and she submitted to him. But after the fall, things changed. And as God's pronouncing the curse here, he is telling uh, Eve and Adam, actually, that, look, Eve, now because of the fall, because sin has entered into your heart, rebellion is planted there now because the devil has gotten to you. And rebellion is at the heart of the fall. Just like Satan was all about rebellion. And now you're going to want to fight against your husband in a sense. You're going to want to dominate him. You're going to want to be in authority over him. But Adam, you're not to let her. This is not my design. You're going to, it's going to be tougher now for you to, to follow what I've instructed. It's not impossible. I'll give you the strength. I just want you to know that from this time on, there's going to be problems. The woman is going to want to usurp her husband's authority. The husband's going to have to exercise more leadership, more authority in the home. This is going to create problems, which it has. Today we see the effects of the curse being played out in marriages all across this planet in what some have called the battle of the sexes. And we see it this conflict, uh, chauvinism, feminism, husbands and wives fighting with each other uh, primarily for dominance, for control. Sin not only disrupted man's relationship with God, it also corrupted man's relationship with his fellow man, including and especially his relationship with his wife. Marriage took the brunt of the fall. But listen, even though the fall brought conflict and chaos into marriage, God wants all of us to understand that in Christ that chaos can be replaced with harmony Because when you enter into Christ, when you're saved, you enter into Christ and a wonderful thing happens. You become a new creation, which means if you're both saved, your marriage becomes a new creation. In fact, Jesus can make it what God intended marriage to be before the fall. That that could only happen in a Christian marriage. You have two laws at work, the law of sin and death before you get saved, When you enter into Christ at salvation, the law of liberty, uh, which is in the spirit. What does that mean? Well, we've talked about this, all right? You've got uh, two very strong, powerful laws in nature. You've got gravity and you've got, we'll say, the law of aerodynamics. Now, we're all subject to gravity. It's a very powerful, universal law. We're all subject to it, right? But if you climb into an airplane, we'll say, and this airplane starts to move down the runway until it gets to a certain speed and then it lifts off, well, another law has now been put into play, which is stronger than the law of gravity. It's the law of aerodynamics. And as long as you're in that plane, gravity hasn't been done away with. It's still there. It's just that you're no longer subject to it because a greater law is now in play, the law of aerodynamics. Step out of the plane, you'll find out gravity is still very much in effect. Here's the thing. We were all subject to the law of sin and death. That's how we were born into this world, right? Uh, the law where the flesh dominated, where rebellion was in our, all of our hearts and so on. Once you got saved, you entered into Christ. And Jesus Christ is more powerful than any law of the devil or of this fallen world. He can cause our marriages, our lives to rise above the law of sin and death. And he can begin to work in and through us 
to make us what he wanted us to be from the very beginning. And that goes for our marriages. But guys, listen to me. It isn't going to happen until you're willing to accept God's authority over your life. And I'm speaking to not just this group. I'm just speaking in general terms to the body of Christ. This isn't going to happen until you're willing to accept God's authority over your life, over every area of your life, including and especially with regard to your marriage. There's a lot of Christians, husbands and wives, who refuse to really obey what God has said. There's a lot of Christian wives that want to dominate and do dominate. A lot of Christian husbands that let them because it's just easier. This has created problems, a lot of problems that we don't have time to get into. It's not that God's strength isn't available, God's grace. It's just that if we're not going to, uh, if we're not going to, to obey what God has said and live at the level of the Spirit, and we're just going to you know, do whatever is expedient or easy, then we're not going to experience the victory and the joy and the fruitfulness and all the other blessings that God wants for our lives uh, if we're not going to do it His way. But listen, when we willingly submit to God's authority over our lives and obey all He has said that we are to do, listen, we become more and more like Jesus, who said, I have not come to do my will, but the will of who sent me. So Jesus was the epitome of humility. He submitted to his Father's authority. He said, I haven't come to do my will. I've come to do the will of him who sent me. The more you draw close to Jesus, the more that's going to be your heart. Not, not my will. Okay, in marriage, in the workplace, in church, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And conversely, when we rebel against God's authority over our lives, we move more and more in the direction of the devil, whose nature is that of rebellion against God. One author put it this way, he said, and I quote, Biblical submission to authority is recognizing that God, my creator, is the ultimate authority and has all power. As clay in the potter's hand, I, his creation, should yield full control of my life to his will. This includes submitting to and obeying all delegated human authority over me, realizing that when I do so, I'm actually submitting to God's authority. Likewise, when I rebel against delegated authority, in essence, I rebel against God himself, end quote. Well, with that in mind, guys, we now come to 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter is talking about the roles of men and women in marriage uh, that God has established and how we as husbands and wives are to obey them. Now, last week we looked at the first six verses, which dealt with God's command to wives. Tonight we'll look at verse 7, which talks about the husband's responsibilities to their wives as God has ordained. Let's read the first six verses again, where Peter said, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. So if you're married to an unbeliever, you be the wife God wants you to be without even saying a word. God will work on this guy, and who knows, he might get saved, okay? Verse 2, without even saying a word, uh, he'll be won by the conduct of their wife uh, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Verse 3, do not let your adornment be merely outward, ranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on a fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. God looks at inner beauty and prizes it much more than outer beauty. Verse 5, for in this manner, the, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, 
as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and uh, are not afraid with any terror. Um, that's pretty straightforward, except that last verse, that last part. Uh, that last statement is a little confusing as to what exactly Peter has in mind when he said, uh, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Well, that's pretty obvious. She respected her husband. You can read that in Genesis 18, verse 12. That's pretty obvious. But this last part, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Okay. Uh, it seems the best way to interpret this is in the context of what Peter is, has just gotten done saying to Christian wives who are married to unbelievers. Again, verses 1 and 2, wives... Likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, in other words, even if you're married to an unbeliever, without a word, your husband may be won by your godly conduct when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. The Greek word there means profound respect. Profound respect. A wife should have profound respect for her husband. One pastor explained it this way, saying that, quote, Wives who follow Sarah's pattern have made the commitment to do what is right or good, even though they might nevertheless have some serious fears as to where such submission under an unsafe husband could lead. We talked about this last week. Okay, so if you get, weren't here, get the CD or go online. It's scary. You're telling Christian wives to submit to their unsaved husbands. These gals were probably like, are you kidding me? He's unsaved. And Peter's saying, go ahead, do it anyways. It's what God wants. Your husband is God's responsibility. Your responsibility is to be what God has told you to be to your husband. So, so don't worry, okay, this pastor is saying, even though you have some serious fears as to where such submission under an unsaved husband could lead, the Greek word for fear is a strong word meaning frightening or terrifying. <laughs> Instead of succumbing to such terrors, those who are faithful to submit because it is good and right can be used by the Lord in the salvation of their husbands, end quote. Very true. Another put it this way. He came at it from a slightly different uh, angle, and I think they're both good to kind of consider. He said, in particular, wives of unbelieving husbands could be prone to fear their husbands, who could treat them rather harshly and perhaps even violently because of their faith. Believers are exhorted to fear God, but any fear of human beings, even in persecution, is to be avoided. The implication is that believing wives will not always behave in a way that pleases their husbands because, at times, their loyalty to God will transcend their duty to submit to their husbands. We also talked about this last week. In such cases, they are not to fear but hope in God, trusting that he will vindicate them on the last day, end quote, that they were faithful to what God said and so on. Now, let me just give you a little caveat. Uh, that doesn't mean that if a woman's in an abusive situation where she's being physically abused, that she needs to just hunker down and stay there. I would never tell a woman to stay in a situation like that. If there's physical abuse going on, you need to get out. You need to get out. And uh, there's all kinds of organizations, if you don't have family, that will help you to leave an abusive situation. If it's verbal abuse, that's not pleasant. Um, it's not dangerous, though, physically. And, and hang in there then and pray for God to give you grace because you being there are a light. Even though he's in darkness, you're a light. And who knows if the devil's really pushing his buttons to make your life miserable because he wants you to get out of there 
because he doesn't want the light around this unsaved husband. The devil wants to keep him, is the idea. Both authors quoted a few proverbs uh, and a psalm on this subject. I'll just read them to you quickly. Proverbs 3.25, Do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. God's in control. You belong to him. Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then Proverbs 1, 33, But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. God's with us, all right? God is with us. So just keep drawing close to him for protection. Now, Peter then, after talking to the wives and their responsibility towards their, their husbands, now turns his attention to Christian husbands and to their God-given responsibility towards their wives. He said in verse 7, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, let me just say this. In the New Testament, guys, there are three main passages that speak to the responsibilities of husbands to their wives in marriage. Ephesians 5, along with the parallel passage in Colossians 3, and then right here in 1 Peter 3. In looking at these three passages, three main responsibilities, we're talking about husbands now, three main responsibilities emerge. Three things that a husband must be to his wife. Here they are just quickly. First of all, a leader, a leader. Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is head of, his, of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. Listen, and, and you can go online and listen to our marriage series, which, which we did and we studied Ephesians, and we went into all this in detail. I'm just giving you just a quick synopsis, all right? But God has ordained that the husband be the leader in his home. The husband is to be the leader in his home. The real problem in all too many Christian marriages is not the unwillingness of the wife to submit. Listen, it's the unwillingness of the husband to lead. In other words, to carry out his God-given responsibility to be a leader in the home. And when I say leader, I'm not saying a tyrant or a dictator. I'm talking about a servant leader. Some people confuse leadership and authority as uh, dictatorial leadership. No, uh, not at all. When God talks about men being leaders in their marriages and in their families, he is talking about the same leadership Christ exhibited when he was on the earth. You couldn't get a more gracious leader. I mean, Jesus Christ never slapped anybody around if they didn't listen to him. He reasoned with them. And when they made mistakes, he showed them where they made the mistake and they went forward. But Jesus is not only the epitome of humility, he's the epitome of leadership. And he's the one men, husbands, are to follow after. Again, in the eyes of God, true leadership always manifests itself in humility, servanthood, read Matthew 20, 26 to 28, and in being an example of Christ's character. So first of all, he's to be a leader. Secondly, he's to be a learner. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding. A husband is to understand his wife. Now, guys, it isn't always easy. Our wives are complicated, beautiful, but complicated creatures. 
Uh, Some of you liken it like this. Women are like these fine goblets of crystal. Delicate, beautiful. Guys are like these like A&W root beer mugs. <laughs> the women have these refined emotions. They're in tune with things. The guys were clunks. We don't, you know, you know, just clunkheads, you know, just, you know, we're built, we're built tough like an A&W root beer mug, but, you know, we don't know what's going on half the time. And so, you know, it's not easy understanding our wives, but that's why we have to work at it. That's why we have to study her, to learn about her, to be a student of her, that we can better what? Serve her. Serve her spiritually, physically, and emotionally. In other words, as husbands, guys, our wives are to be our primary ministry. Our primary ministry. A lot of guys, oh, I want to serve the Lord. How are you doing at home with your marriage? Well, not that great. Well, work on that first. That's your primary. Your wife is your primary ministry. Pour yourself into her. And, and, and then God will give you other things to do. He wants you to be a leader in your home and a learner of your wife before he ever sends you out to do anything else for him. One pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, a wife should never be viewed merely as a sexual object, but there must be a broader understanding. A godly husband will seek to understand his wife's moods, feelings, needs, fears, and hopes. He will listen to her with his heart, demonstrate love, and stimulate joy within her. I mean, she's, she's the one you want to focus on if you're married. Okay, so as husbands, we are to be, first of all, to our wives, a leader, secondly, a a learner, and finally, a lover. Ephesians 5.25 says, husbands, love your wives. Husbands are commanded to love their wives. Interestingly, there is no such direct command to wives to love their husbands in the New Testament. It says clearly, husbands, love your wives. You won't find any passage in the New Testament that says wives love your husbands. Why is that? The reason is because husbands represent Jesus in the marriage. And John said in his first epistle that we love Jesus because he first loved us. Look, when a man loves his wife like Christ loves the church, she will reflect that love back to him. Her love for him will be a response to his love for her. Now look, I'm talking about a Christian spirit-filled woman. All right? Certainly in marriage you could love a gal with all your heart like Jesus and if she's not walking with the Lord and not even saved, she's just going to absorb all that sacrifice and service and give nothing back. We're talking about a woman that was saved and filled with the spirit. When you love her the way Christ loves his bride, guys, she will is we love him because he first loved us. You love her that way, sacrificially and so on, she'll begin to reflect that love back to you. It's going to be a response to your love for her. Last week, I quoted you a little story uh, that, remember I said that um, when wives are all that God wants them to be, they'll make their husbands better men. Uh, That's true, but I actually had it backwards. And I found the actual quote. I'd like to read it to you, okay? Not that that's not true, uh, a woman who really loves her we talk about her, loving him, being in his corner, encouraging him when he makes a mistake, she's going to make him be a, a better man. Okay, that's true. But the th- story I was thinking of was actually the reverse of that. Let me read it to you. Uh, There's a, a story that uh, comes from the early 1800s. 
It goes, and I quote, It has been said that an eastern newspaper man went down south prior to the Civil War to interview the southern ladies. He had heard that they were more feminine, desirable, and submissive to their husbands than were their counterparts back east, and he desired to know why. After his interviews, he wrote an article stating that the difference with southern women is southern men. His article continued to describe how southern gentlemen treated their wives and daughters with total respect and honor. In other words, the wives were cherished and the women's response was to live up to the reputation of being noble ladies, end quote. And that's really what Paul is saying, I think. When he doesn't command women to love their husbands, it's, it's assumed in that when men love their wives like Christ loves the church, she's going to reflect that love back to him. The automatic. Again, Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, listen. Some men are forever using Ephesians 5.22 as a club to beat their wives with. Submit. Wives, submit. You know, they've got it painted on a plaque, nailed to the wall somewhere where she can't miss seeing it every day, right? I knew a guy like that. It's all he ever did was quote Ephesians 5.22 to his wife. It was only her responsibility to do anything in marriage. It was just submit. Submit, submit, submit. That's his big deal. But verse 25 says that husbands have the greater responsibility. That is to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Or put it another way, guys. God commands wives to submit to their husbands. That's true. But he commands husbands to die for their wives. That's the greater responsibility. Because that's what Jesus did for his bride, the church. It has been said that no wife would mind being submissive to a husband who loves her as Christ loves the church. Why does my wife want to submit to me? Why is she so rebellious? Are you loving her like Christ loved the church? Maybe she's just reflecting in you. I mean, if you've got a rebellious attitude, you're not walking with God. Maybe she's just reflecting your heart. I mean, when you start loving her as Christ loves the church, maybe she'll stop rebelling against you, and maybe she'll start being more submissive. I don't know. Someone wrote to a Christian ministry, this man feared that he was displeasing God by loving his wife too much. A Christian worker wrote him back and asked him if he loved her more than Christ loved the church. He said, well, no. The worker said, only when you go beyond that are you loving your wife too much. Now, of course, guys, we're talking about you loving your wife like Christ loved the church. We're not talking, listen to me, we're not talking about you putting your wife above your devotion and obedience to Jesus. That's not, see, that, that wouldn't fall under the category of loving her too much. That would fall under the category of loving her falsely or improperly or incorrectly. You can't love a wife too much the way Christ loved us. He died for us. You die for your wife every day, put her first and so on. You're not loving her too much. If you put her above the Lord, though, that's idolatry. Now, I don't know, maybe some gals demand to be put above the Lord. They demand their husbands obey them before the, he obeys the Lord. I don't know. That would be wrong. I just know that when a man puts his wife above his devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, that is idolatry. That is not what God is talking about. But when we're talking about true love, Jesus' love for his church, his bride, the Bible says that he loved his bride to the end. John 13, 1. And the Greek word 
literally means he loved her fully, completely, all the way to the end of his life by dying for her. And likewise, husbands, that's how we are to love our wives as well. Fully, completely, for the rest of our lives. Until death do us part. Now, 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Again, Peter said, Likewise, husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. Ooh, a lot of folks don't like that. Okay. First of all, the word honor means respect. Respect. All men are to respect all women, but especially husbands are to respect their wives. One pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, giving honor means that the husband respects his wife's feelings, thinking, and desires. He may not always agree with her ideas, but he respects them. Often God balances them. I've seen this so many times. Often God balances a marriage so that, so that the husband needs what the wife has in her personality, and she likewise needs his good qualities. It balances them out. You know, so she's a real spendthrift, and he's kind of frugal. That kind of balances them out, right? He goes on to say, an impulsive husband often finds he has, has a patient wife, and this helps to keep him out of trouble. The husband must be the thermostat in the home, setting the emotional and spiritual temperature. The wife is often the thermometer, letting him know what that temperature is. Uh, both are necessary. The husband who is sensitive to his wife's feelings will not only make her happy, but will also grow himself and help his children to live in a home that honors God, end quote. Guys, if you have any young kids, I don't know how many have young kids still, but what I would say every time I get an opportunity to speak to young husbands that have young children, you want your kids to grow up loving and respecting you? Then love their mother. You love and respect those children's mom, they will love and respect you. A man who is harsh with his wife, disrespectful, putting her down. The kids are watching that, and they're losing all respect for you. In fact, they're going to hate you because they love their mother. You want to be a good influence? You want to really impact your, your kids for good, especially your sons? Love their mother. I can't underscore that enough. Peter says, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. This is not meant to put women down. Peter did not suggest that a wife is the weaker vessel mentally, morally, spiritually. He's only talking physically. Physically. Now, that used to be something all men and women understood and even celebrated. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I'm happy that women don't look like us. That there's a difference. Okay? Now, that used to be understood, celebrated, right? Uh, the difference between men and women. In fact, since the beginning of creation, God made men physically stronger than women because the man's role was to protect and provide for his wife and family. And look, most women not only understood that, but felt secure being married to a strong man who listened, cherished them, cared for them, and were servant leaders to them. These be qualities that were prized. Women prized in a man uh, to have a, a good, strong husband who used that strength not to intimidate and, uh, and to hurt, but to protect and serve. I think most women in our country in the old days, they understood that. They celebrated Christian women especially. And yet all of that changed with the sexual revolution of the 1960s 
that vilified any talk of men and women being different or having any God-given roles in marriage. Since the uh, 1960s, the whole idea of what it means to be a man has been under attack by feminists in our culture. These are people who despise any notion that men should be the leaders of their families and that women or wives are to submit to their husbands. In fact, they've been working very hard over the last 60 years or so to masculinize females, but in particular to feminize males, starting with boys, so that they never grow up to be the kind of men God has created them to be. We see this very clearly, I think, in the modern millennial males in our country. Modern millennial males in our country. Most of these young men come across as feminized wimps. I'm sorry. Who are so in touch with their feminine side, they've lost touch with what it means to be a man. In fact, today it's getting harder and harder to tell whether a young person is a male or female. Men are looking more like women. And women are looking more like men than I think at any other time in our nation's history. There's been more than a few times. Cindy and I have been out at the mall, and some young person will walk by, and I'll turn at her and say, was that a guy or a girl? I can't tell, okay? And mostly, mostly, it's not the women looking like the guys as much as it is the men looking like the women. Now, if you doubt what I'm saying, Google manscara and guy liner. And see how many of these men are wearing makeup, mascara, in an attempt to look more feminine. And don't even get me started with man buns, okay? Where a guy walks around with a little, his hair pulled up and a little bun on top of his head. Don't even get me going there, all right? Look, God created men. God created men to be protectors and providers. In other words, to be strong, responsible men. I've read some interesting uh, articles on this, how that before the Industrial Revolution in our country, of course, families lived together on farms. And little boys grew up, and and little girls, but little boys primarily grew up on the farm working with their dads, uh, learning how to to work and, 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 and to be men. Father was right there. But when the Industrial Revolution came about, uh, men went off to work, to work in the cities. And the wives were left to raise little boys. And at one time, there was a lot of male teachers in school. And now they've been replaced with more women. Now, girls, I'm not putting you down. You just are different. And I've heard more than a few teachers, female teachers, say that little boys are too aggressive. They're out in the playground. They're being aggressive and fighting. And we have to to work to get this out of little boys. Are you kidding me? This is how God has designed them. God designed little boys. The testosterone and all is designed by God because little boys grow up to be men who fight for their families, who protect, provide. This is all what it means about being a man. And if you somehow train that out of them, what you're left with is a lot of men who are not men. Not men. This has happened over the last, well, 60 years primarily, where society has tried to level the playing field between boys and girls, between men and women, and it's PC attempt to create, listen, an egalitarian society where there is no difference between men and women. No roles, no nothing. 
And the more society has done this, the more we are seeing men who are unwilling to be responsible providers, who are unwilling to sacrifice themselves to protect women and children as God created men to do. I've read this to you before. Let me read it again. I came across a book written by a man named Richard Fugit, a book called What the Bible Says About Being a Man. And he shares from history how men treated women and children when the Titanic sank on April 15th of 1912. He said, and I quote, There was an unwritten code of the sea which said, Women and children first. It is the natural code that a man operating by biblical standards will always follow. A large number of male passengers on the Titanic were Christians, and those men knew well the passage, Greater love hath no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends, John 15, 13. Knowing that they had a place reserved in heaven, they had no need to grasp onto their physical lives. Because of their sacrifice, approximately now, Titanic, 75% of the women were saved, while only 20% of the men survived. Do you think men today would make the same sacrifices? Well, he quotes how in 1987 a ferry sank in the Philippines, killing over 4,000 people. Mostly women and children died. The majority of the survivors this time were men. Similarly, a few years later, when, a, when the ferry Estonia sank in the Baltic Sea, most of its survivors were also men. When the men survivors were questioned why they had not helped the women and children, they were quoted as saying, hey, it's survival of the fittest. It was every man for himself. If women want equality so much, they've got it. In 1992, when a survey was taken among 200 adults called the Titanic Test, it revealed that if the Titanic sank today, only 67% of the men would be willing to give up their seat for their spouses a little more than 33% of the men would give up lifeboat seats to a woman other than their wives, and only 55% of men would yield a seat for their own mothers, end quote. Fugit goes on to say, if our nation is to return to a period of greatness, men will have to accept the role of protector over those who are weak and needy. If the family is to again be strong, husbands and fathers will have to exercise their strength and leadership for the protection of their wives and children. In other words, we will need biblical men who are willing to sacrifice their lives for their families, end quote. Guys, these were the unintended consequences of the feminist movement, which has been from its very beginning an attack, a demonic attack, on the God-ordained roles of men and women in society. And listen. As women have sought to be equal to men, well, men no longer cherish women as the weaker vessel as they once did. Again, 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Husbands, likewise dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Even though Peter says that wives are to submit to the authority of their husbands, he adds that they are both heirs together of the grace of eternal life is the idea. In other words, a godly husband realizes that his spouse is not only his wife, she is also his sister in Christ. And this is something I try to drive home to young couples who are coming in for marriage counseling, couples that I'm trying to encourage them to stay pure. I always tell them, look, she is going to be your wife soon. But right now, she is your sister in Christ. 
And therefore, as your sister in Christ, you should not want to do anything that would violate her in any way or uh, remove her from that place of blessing that the Lord wants her to be in so he can pour his blessings upon her life. Peter is saying, in other words, when it comes to salvation and eternal life, both husbands and wives are children of God and will share equally in the blessings of heaven, even though, listen, there is authority and submission between them here on the earth. So this is only for the function of, you know, marriage, family, right now. In heaven, there's the only authority that we are to submit to is the authority of God. But right now, there is authority and submission, but that doesn't mean superiority and inferiority. It just means this is a purely for the sake of function. That a marriage has to have a leader, and one has to be a follower. They're both equal. They should have equal input in the matters of decisions and all. We've talked about that. But when a decision has to be made and they cannot agree, God says the husband has a responsibility to make the deciding, you know, cast the deciding vote to make the decision, basically. Let me just read to you 1 Peter 3, 7, one more time from the NLT. In the same way you husbands must give honor to your wives, treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are physically, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. And guys, that's an important statement that Peter makes here. The consequences for a husband who doesn't treat his wife the way God has commanded him to treat her, the consequences will be his prayers are going to be hindered. God's not going to be answering his prayers. Until he gets it right and begins to treat his wife with respect and honor her the way God has commanded him to do. Because by not honoring her, by not loving her as God has commanded, he's not submitting to God's authority. He's rebelling against what God has commanded. That's a serious thing. And therefore you sever your fellowship with God on a practical level. And God will not answer your prayers until you get it right. But listen to me. This is my own conviction. If the wives won't honor and respect their husbands, if they refuse to submit to them, then I personally believe their prayers are going to be hindered also. Again, you're rebelling against God's authority. You're not doing what he's commanded you to do. If you're going to rebel against God's authority and not be the wife God's commanded you to be, your relationship with God is going to suffer. Your fellowship will be broken. God won't be answering your prayers either. I'll read you one more quote, this time from Chuck Swindoll. We'll close. He said, and I quote, Finally, Peter points out a great purpose for maintaining domestic harmony so that your prayers will not be hindered. Have you ever tried to pray after having an argument with your wife? How easy is it to hold your husband's hand in prayer after butting heads in conflict? When a husband and wife don't keep their married life intact, they'll have trouble keeping their spiritual life on track. Why? Because there's a direct relationship between the love of God and the love of our fellow believers. 1 John 4.20 Marriage then functions like a barometer, measuring our spiritual lives through an everyday relationship. Relationship to our spouse. Think about it. If Jesus Christ is in the midst of two people gathered in his name, Matthew 18, 20, then just imagine how powerful the prayers are of a unified husband and wife, how powerful they can be, which more than any other human analogy pictures the union between Christ 
and his church, end quote. So next week, God willing, we will continue. We've taken a little extra time, just a couple weeks looking at seven verses, but seven very important verses because I don't think there's too many relationships out there more important than your relationship to your spouse. Of course, your relationship to God is more important, but you get what I mean. And so uh, by God's grace, we'll pick it up next week, or not next week. Next week is the week of the fast. Uh, come on out and join us as much as you can for prayer in the evening. The week after, though, we will pick it up in 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truly a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And we will walk in your word, all that it tells us to do and to be, especially as husbands and wives. Our marriages will be blessed, our families will be blessed, and our walk in relationship with you will be blessed. Lord, give us grace. The devil has got marriage in the crosshairs. And he wants to ramp up conflict between husbands and wives. He's all about dividing and conquering. If he can keep dividing marriages, conquering marriages where they end in divorce, he can bring down a church, he can bring down a nation, and we're seeing it. Father, give us grace to understand that conflict in marriage is primarily spiritual warfare in operation. Not that we can blame the devil for the conflict that we are walking in. He pushes the buttons, but we submit. We run with it. Lord, give us grace to humble ourselves as husbands to be the husbands you want us to be, as wives to be the wives you want them to be, that we can all be submissive, walking in humility to your will, that you might bless our marriages, bless our families, bless our church. We just, Father, ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.